Good afternoon. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This show was pre-recorded on September 13th, so we are not taking any listener calls or questions this afternoon. We are interested in your comments, though. You can contact us at news at weru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. This is the eighth program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERUFM. Our conversation today is called In Government We Trust, or Do We? We'll talk about trust and distrust in government. What is the history of Distrust in government in the U.S., how has it been weaponized in the last half century? What do we lose when we have a blanket distrust in government? And frankly, who loses and who gains? What, what motivates strategic attempts to weaken government? And in what way is distrust a weapon in the arsenal of those attempts? This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum. Let me introduce our guests. Amy Freed has been with us before. She's the John Mitchell Nickerson Professor of Political Science at the University of Maine. Her most recent book, At War with Government, How Conservatives Weaponize Distrust from Goldwater to Trump, is co-authored with Douglas B. Harris and was published this year by Columbia University Press. Welcome, Amy. It's great to be here, Anne. And Stephen Webster is Assistant Professor of Political Science at Indiana University. His recent book is American Rage, How Anger Shapes Our Politics, published by Cambridge University Press in August of 2020. Welcome, Stephen. So happy to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. According to Pew Research Center, in the early 1960s, over 70% of Americans trusted the federal government to do the right thing, at least most of the time. Almost 60, 60 years later, by early 2019, that same poll found that only 17% of Americans trusted government, from 60, 60 per, uh, from 70% to 17% in just 60 years. Somehow, in the intervening years, our healthy skepticism has curdled into a loss of legitimacy for some of our basic democratic institutions. How did we get here? And can we hold the republic without trust without bringing trust back into our civil society. So with that leading, um, Amy, let me ask you to summarize um, briefly the essential elements of your book. Sure. Uh, what this book does, uh, which I wrote with a co-author, Doug Harris of Loyola University, Maryland, is it looks at distrust as something that's related to political strategy. And um, although there are lots of reasons why the public has lost trust in government and plenty of studies that look at a lot of different elements, our real contribution is to say, what is it that, that political elites were doing, particularly conservatives? And what we argue is that there's been an effort to promote distrust in government for four strategic reasons. Um, and this is an interaction between political leaders and the public. So it's not that the public is just purely manipulated, um, but it's also, you know, affected by what, what the leadership are doing. 
You want to say a little bit about um, what those four planks are? Yeah, absolutely. So the four parts uh, are uh, what we call organizational, electoral, institutional, and policy. So the organizational is that distrust serves certain purposes for political organizations, whether political parties or political movements, different groups, and it helps to provide an organizing principle, a glue that pulls together different groups um, and helps to build and maintain those organizations. When it comes to elections, we're all pretty used to candidates making these arguments about trust and distrust and that certain people are not uh, worthy or trusted. They're trying to, you know, bring in government that's too big, whether it's calling, you know, candidates socialists or big government, whatever it happens to be. So it's used in elections. When it comes to institutions, what we see are efforts to drive trust away, to pull trust away and promote distrust from the institutions that one's opponent's party controls and to move it towards the institutions that, that they control. Um, so it, it, and that can shift from time to time, which I, we, you know, we can talk about. And then with policy, there's just a wide array of policies where the arguments are made that government is too big and we shouldn't trust government to have this kind of control um, and what, and we, although this applies to many areas of politics and policy, we trace it out over time when it comes to health policy in particular. Huh. Now, our, found, our founders were essentially distrustful of an overreaching government and founded our system of checks and balances to protect against the mis, misuse of governmental power. I mean, so some of this is sort of baked in, isn't it, Stephen? Yeah, I mean, I, I think part of the, the tradition of American politics is a bit of a skeptical outlook on, on government and political officials. Um, but, you know, I think there's a real difference between outright distrust and healthy skepticism. I think most of us would say that healthy skepticism is good. Right? We, we don't want a blanket trust of the government because that can. And in fact, we've seen that. Um, lead to some bad outcomes. But we're at the point where a lot of Americans don't trust government at all. And that really inhibits our ability to come together and do things that really improve the, the social good. Um, so that, that difference is essential. I mean, that's a little bit what you were saying, Amy. It's just not one side doing it to the other side. There's an interplay here between people's natural predisposition to be skeptical and then people sort of leveraging that. But I mean, how do we know when distrust has gone too far, when sort of skeptical, skeptical, skeptical oversight sort of bends towards a delegitimizing of basic institutions? Like, how can you tell when we cross that line or can you? Amy? Yeah, I mean, I, that's going to be a matter of judgment. But I would say that if we look at today, I'd point to two examples where I think it does go over the line. And one of them um, would be the delegitimization of elections and election processes, which has become really prominent among Republicans. We're even seeing that um, well, this is being taped in September, uh, so by now we'll know how it turned out, but there's a California recall election going on, 
and uh, the Republican that would be most likely to win should the recall succeed, should succeed Larry Elder is already talking about the possibility of fraud, even though California is at this point in its history, a very blue state, you know? So it's, it, you know, uh, unless, you know, it's, of course it's possible it'll go the other way, but, you know, but if, but why would you start with the, that kind of, you know, vision of it. Um, and we're and we're seeing attacks on elect local election officers all over the country. So that would be one example. And the other would be some of the responses to public health officials. In fact, this summer, the American Medical Association came out with a statement decrying the intimidation and threats against uh, medical workers and public health officials. And, uh, you know, that that I think is really to the point that it's it shows some of the dangers of distrust, both the dangers when it comes to democratic norms and politics, but also really to matters of life and death. I mean, comment on that, Stephen. I mean, around here, at least in Maine, um, being on the school board has been a tough job this year. Um, because of the controversy over masks in schools and no mask in schools. How much of the anti-mask feeling is really a reaction to government telling us what to do, do you think? You know, it's an interesting question. Um, I, I think it's a reaction against government telling us what to do to the extent we think this is purely driven by a conservative ideology. Um, and I think that is part of it. But I, I think a related part, but arguably something more important, is a uh, the politicization of the use of masks by former President Trump. You know, you, you can imagine a world in which wearing a mask was not a political issue. I'd say we had a, a different Republican president who said, you know, be a good American citizen. It's your patriotic duty to wear a mask. And instead, we, we didn't see that. Right. And this hasn't even been the case in recent American history. You can think back to, um, you know, the you know, around 2014, 2015 with the H1N1 swine flu. And there wasn't this, you know, mass division among the public about whether we should take these preemptive measures. And so I think there's been this real um, dangerous insertion of politics into public health. And I think this speaks to some of Amy's points about how we're seeing some uh, drastic consequences of lack of trust in government here. And it's not the fact that we distrust government per se, but we're now taking actions that that clearly demonstrate that we distrust government and these actions are consequential for, for all of us. Mm -hmm. I mean, I came of age during the Vietnam, you know, Watergate era. So I sort of grew up thinking government was not altogether to be trusted, um, but has, has government ever been less trusted than it is now, would you say, Amy? Well, in the modern age of polling, no. You know, that doesn't mean it hasn't happened before, but we don't have we don't have data on that, you know, and 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 I would never be one to say you should always trust government or we're just supposed to follow, you know, whatever it is that government officials have to. We have to be skeptical. That's important part of being a democratic citizen. But the difference as uh, you know, as we argue, as Stephen alluded, is this weaponization of distrust and actually what we were originally going to call the book that was, you know, our original title was weaponizing distrust is that phrase shows up in the book and it shows up in the subtitle, but that's kind of really the point is that it becomes a political weapon. I mean, it's one thing to go out and say, 
well, we should be skeptical. We have to hold government officials accountable. We have to make sure there's checks and balances. All of that is very appropriate, but it's taking it and using it in this very sort of almost blunt way and often tied up um, especially, you know, in more recent years, but in the past as well with xenophobia and, you know, kind of racist messages so that it's extremely divisive. It's, it becomes a very us versus them sort of thing. I mean, you can trace back for a long time the idea that, you know, a lot of arguments that, well, government's not on your side because it's on the side of these other people who are not deserving, but um, just, just the intensity of it. Um, and even though, you know, we see this, this trend over this long period of time and, and really our emphasis is from Reagan on, I would say, and we argued that Donald Trump took it in much more extreme directions and really in this much more overt uh, kind of messages. I mean, you know, even when we're talking about immigrants, for example, the final speech that Reagan gave as president he talked about the country being open to immigrants. And he said, that's what I mean by the phrase shining city set on a hill, which he borrowed from the Puritan John Winthrop. But he said, this is what I mean is it's open. It's an open city and people can come to it. And we have immigrants who want to become Americans. And this is a very different view that you see then from Donald Trump, who's just, you know, these people are scary. Maybe not all Muslims are rapists, but a lot of them are. And the, you know, it's just, it's, it, 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 he's taken it in a very, he took it in a very different direction. And now both sides distrust government when the other side is in power, isn't that? I mean, there is a little bit of symmetry there, but then it's not entirely symmetrical, is it either, Stephen? I mean, yeah, that's, uh, that's exactly right. Um, so I think one of the real contributions of Amy's work is that she shows the extent to which Republicans have weaponized this distrust. But, you know, we, we can't ignore the fact that there is this queer pattern where if you're a Democrat, you're going to trust government more when, you know, your party, your team controls the levers of government. And on the other hand, when Republicans are in control, you're going to express distrust. And it's shocking how quickly those patterns can reverse when a new administration comes in. And this is largely because partisanship is really the, the key player in American politics today. It's always been important, but there's been a whole series of secular trends in American society that have produced a climate in which partisanship really is the, the be-all, end-all of American politics. And so partisanship is uh, you know, incredibly important in shaping how we view the federal government. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today, in government we trust, or do we? Our guests this afternoon are Amy Freed, John Mitchell Nickerson Professor of Political Science at the University of Maine, and Stephen Webster, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Indiana University. As you were talking, I was thinking about um, I'm not sure if this is accurately attributed to Liz Cheney, but it was, or I'm not sure who this, who said this, but it was about, um, you know, there's no longer sort of the loyal opposition. Like we're not just ad adversaries across the political divide. Now we're like mortal enemies. And I mean, that plays into this, as Stephen was saying, that we're so identified 
you know, by our political affiliations and so deeply divided across that too, Amy. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, Stephen's own work is about anger, you know, and, and American politics and partisanship. You know, I mean, he could he can speak speak about that a bit. Uh, there's a there's a phrase in political science, negative partisanship, where it's not just, you know, you're not just supporting your party, but you're opposed to the other side. Um, and that can be a big driver. So it's like, you know, like uh, we talk about cues, like normally talk about a cue, like in a, a theater production, you know, you're about to go on. So you get your little cue. Well, the cue that ordinary citizens have a really important one is part is party. So if you see these people support it, then you're going to be against it because you don't like it. Um, you know, and partisanship didn't used to be as significant a cue. There's a lot of, you know, conversation and research about this. But, you know, you could look, for example, at public opinion on climate change. Now, there were differences between the parties on climate change years ago when they started, you know, people started doing surveys about it, but it's just become much larger. So, you know, partisanship is just much more significant a cue than it and, used to be. And I mean, since Amy raised it, Stephen, let me ask you, I mean, what role does rage play in fomenting this kind of distrust? Yeah, so rage or anger, however you want to phrase this, is a powerful emotion that shapes how we view the government, right? You can imagine in your daily life, if you're angry at a person or, or a company or whatever it is, you're probably not going to offer a very positive assessment of that person or that company. And it's the same dynamic that we see play out with the federal government, right? We can be angry at politicians. We can be angry at the institution of government. We can be angry at various, um, you know, bureaucracies. And this anger causes us to, to really view the institution of the government in a negative light. And so it's, it's very corrosive for how Americans view the federal government. And I think one of the interesting synergies between my own work and Amy's work is that I think a lot of her work picks up on how Republicans were very strategic in eliciting this anger and this distrust. And, you know, it's, it's certainly the case that anger affects both Democrats and Republicans and Republicans and Democrats both distrust the government. But if this is a game, I think Republicans are better at playing it. I think they're, 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 they're well-versed and, and they're better at doing this than Democrats are. Why is that? Amy? You know, I, oh, well, Stephen, uh, go ahead. Yeah. I, I think there is, you know, some sense that, that, you know, Republicans tend to be um, more prone to rage, right? They, they, they sort of bask in media environments that, that facilitate um, these sort of anger-inducing sound bites. Um, and and I, I think they're a more homogenous uh, group in the electorate, right? And so it's easier to, to have a sort of um, short, um, convincing piece of rhetoric that can appeal to anger when you're talking about Republicans as opposed to the Democratic Party, which is more heterogeneous in, in terms of how it's made up demographically. Do you want to take a stab at that, Amy, or otherwise I've got another question for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I'll just add, yeah, I agree. It's a Democrats have a broader kind of uh, coalition and probably a lot of their, you know, overall take in terms of ideology, not that people are ideologically consistent necessarily, but it is going to be more, you know, positive towards government because they want government to accomplish certain things, you know, a very strong support, for example, for 
widening health coverage, say, or um, you know, co- uh, providing support for uh, education, including higher education, child care. You know, so there's just a whole array of policies uh, where the government has a role to support people and also as a buttress against businesses and other kinds of private power. So, so some of what you talked about in the book had to do with this self-reinforcing doom loop where distrust in government results in defunding government, which results in dysfunctional government, which results in more distrust of government and, you know, repeat the cycle. I mean, so this all tends to be, you know, snowballing towards smaller and less functional government. Who benefits from that? You know, if Amy. Yeah, I mean, besides the political benefits, which is really what I, you know, mostly what we mostly talk about. Would power be a um, word for that? Hmm? How, would power be a word for that? Yeah, benefit? I mean, yeah, yeah, political, political power. But, um, you know, there's there would be people who, you know, like you look at the um, very wealthy libertarians, uh, you know, kind of billionaire class that <laughs> that tends to support those same kinds of policies, whether it's the uh, Cokes or, or others like that. Um, you know, so, you know, they would they would prefer that government be weaker and, uh, you know, that let oil companies do whatever they want. I mean, I don't think I don't think everything is driven by money and politics. That's not my own perspective. I think in some ways that gets overstated, but certainly there are uh, some who are going to benefit from having less power of the government over over controlling big business. And less regulation in the environmental sphere and in the market sphere and many others. I see you nodding, Stephen. Do you want to comment on that? No, just to, to, you know, to reiterate the point that I think facilitating distrust in government has a very clear partisan lean, right? We also know that trust in government can facilitate support for social welfare programs, so things like Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. So, you know, if we care about perpetuating these programs that seek to, you know, level the playing field, you know, then, then we need to be concerned about distrust in government. And so I think there's plenty of examples where this, this matters in terms of policy. Give us a couple examples. Go ahead. So the big one is social security, right? So you you have to trust that what you pay into the system will eventually come back to you when you're old enough to draw on social security. And if you don't trust the government, it's hard to pay into the system where the benefits are delayed, right? This was always pitched as, you know, America's contract to its greatest generation and and taking care of our, our, our seniors. And so this would be catastrophic if support for Social Security completely went away because of distrust in government. So while this distrust can you know, be strategically used by politicians to win elections, there are real consequences to this. And some of them we may not realize until many years down the road. 
Amy, some agencies, it seems to me at least, have been very publicly sort of undermined in the last several years. I think of the IRS, which has been deeply underfunded, the United Post, the United States Postal Service, which was so controversial in the last election, even to some extent, the Center for Disease Control. Have some, have some of these agencies been specifically targeted by these campaigns, and how has that sort of worked out? Um, I think the, you know, in the last administration, the, the post office, yes, um, over many years, people, people don't tend to like the IRS <laughs> that much, but they do believe that everyone should pay their fair share of taxes, and they do support wealthy people paying more in taxes, you know, I mean, that, that's a pretty strong finding in lots of research, you know, um, and, and I'd say, you know, in general, people have tended to support Social Security when George W. Bush tried to pr partially privatize, you know, Social Security, he ran into a lot of trouble. Once people get a hold of some benefits and they see something that affects them and helps them, it, it, it often does tend then to, to promote more support. I mean, we looked at, look at the effort again, um, when it comes to health care to to defund um, Obamacare that ended up not working, um, you know, so there, there are some things that people do want. On the other hand, I think, you know, and this is was a self-inflicted wound from the Obama administration when the when the exchange, the, the website used for the Obamacare exchanges didn't work that was like a really black eye for the whole program. And I think it made people very un, unhappy. Look, government can't handle this. Um, and you see all of this in general with any kind of health policy, um, all of this language against it, anything, you know, in more recent years with Obamacare, when it was being passed, the whole death panel kinds of arguments. But you see a lot of things like that even a lot earlier, you know, in health policy debates. Um, but, you know, but I think in general, people like the programs that are there now. It seems to be uh, apocryphal that people had signs at Tea Party demonstrations that said, you know, keep your hands off, government hands off my social security or my government hands off my Medicare. Uh, but in any case, whether it was or not, it, it's like people sort of, they draw these lines in their brains between things that they they see as does you know going to them is okay that they're deserving and then being against government programs. Well, and that raises the question in my mind about how much of this distrusting government originated in the slave state South, where you know the intrusion of the federal government was um, a, a threat to their private property rights and owning human beings. What do you think about that, Stephen? And this is a continuing thread in American history. So there are certainly, uh, you know, colleagues of mine who, who study racial politics who could speak better to this question than I could. But, but I will say that, you know, there, there is something there, right? We, we see that there's this strand of conservative thoughts that has been largely in the Southern United States um, this this idea of individual liberty, um, property rights, as you suggest, oftentimes get extended to some very um, unfortunate ends, right? Property rights of, of owning another human being. I think we can all agree that's that's 
you know, not a good thing. Um, but I, I think in a lot of ways, this narrative persists and there's, there's a, a narrative of sort of a victimhood, right? This is sort of mythical past of what the South used to look like and, and what life was like in America before the federal government got so big and, and interfered in what we do as a local community. And so I think there is this sense of it's us versus them in some pockets of the country, right? And, and it's easy to demonize the federal government. They're the, the sort of big bad guys up in Washington, D.C. coming in to interfere with, with how you want to live your lives. And so I do think there are aspects of that in the South. We see this play out a little bit in terms of debates about symbols in the South, all these debates about whether Confederate statues should remain up or whether they should come down. And it's interesting hearing the, the sort of rhetoric and the language people use in defending keeping some of these statues up, right? It's this sort of myth of a glorified past that people are, are yearning for. And so I think a lot of that does tap in to this idea of, of individual liberty and freedom, and specifically freedom from a government that that people don't trust as being representative of, of their values. And freedom from the tyranny of the majority in taxing the private property of the minority. I mean, that's sort of a thread through the Koch brothers brand of libertarianism. Do you want to comment on that, Amy, about um, private property and the thread of states' rights through all of this? Yeah, I mean, the idea that states should have a certain amount of, you know, power means that there's always going to be differences, be differences in states. And the South has remained this, you know, more anti-federal government part of the country at certain certain parts of the West as well, I'd say too, though, you know, parts of the Mountain West. Um, but when it when it comes to when it comes to the South, I think there's some really interesting history to remember too from the New Deal period, where, and of course, at the this point, the South was heavily democratic. It was, you know, one party ruled by Democrats, Democrats who were explicitly in favor of segregation and white supremacy, um, I'd add. But those political leaders at the time, they were perfectly happy to take federal dollars. They supported it. They supported all of those programs coming into their states. Um, they, they wanted better roads and better hospitals and you know, to, to sort of build up the South, which was very much of a economic backwater. Um, but then when they structured the policies, they structured them in a way that it was much better for white people than for black people. And even Social Security, you know, was imprinted with that so that, um, you know, you had agricultural workers and domestic workers who were left out of Social Security. And it wasn't just like an oversight that this mostly, you know, oh, gee, somehow this affects black people the most. That wasn't an oversight wasn't like we just made a mistake, you know? I mean, there were, there were leaders who, you know, legislators who wanted it to work out that way. So, you know, even when there was support in the South for government programs and coming in and that's helped people out, it became very much affected by, by race. And, and um, you know, when, when you get to the early 1960s and you get the passage of the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, then that pushed the, a lot of the white South, uh, go, they start moving towards the Republican Party. 
uh, because that forced so much change from that that racial uh, infrastructure. You know, even things like uh, Medicare and Medicaid forced uh, the desegregation of hospitals. You know, if you were going to take those federal dollars, then you had in this post civil rights era, then they had to desegregate. So yeah. the South, yeah, the South has been quote, anti-government, but in a way that was, that's very reflective of a certain racial hierarchy. Yeah. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Amy Freed, the John Mitchell Nickerson Professor of Political Science at the University of Maine, and Stephen Webster, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Indiana University. Our topic this afternoon is in government we trust or do we this show was pre-recorded so we're not taking any listener calls or questions we are interested in your comments so you can contact us at news at weru.org please put democracy forum in the subject line and to the extent that we're looking at sort of the end game of a a long campaign of strategic intent to generate distrust in government. Do you think we're on the verge of becoming ungovernable? I mean, between the big lie and the January 6th insurre insurrection, I mean, do, do you think these are the acceptable collateral damage to the architects of distrust? Or, I mean, can we hold it together at this point, Amy? I mean, I, I think this goes to something that we talk about in the book, which is the lack of control that some of the people who have pushed this strategy of distrust have over the, 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 the consequences of it, um, where it's kind of loosing something onto the world and then not being able to really hold it back. And, and one of the first things that uh, Doug Harris and I ever wrote about this topic, we compared what was happening to, to a bullfighter. And we used an epigraph from um, Hemingway uh, where he talked about waving a, a red cape and it would, it would cause the, the bull to come and turn at the matador so that the matador could, you know, attack it. But sometimes the bull would turn on the matador and gore, gore him. Um, and, you know, that's, I think, kind of what what we've seen and, and maybe seen increasingly. It happened with the with the Tea Party, certainly, where a lot of establishment Republicans were really not that happy with certain elements of the Tea Party. And it got turned against them. You had people who lost their primaries who were more into governing. They may have been very conservative, but they were you know, they wanted to govern, they wanted to get things done and come in, you know, have compromises. They were serious people. Um, and, you know, there were a certain number of Republican leaders who weren't very happy when, when Trump came along and Trump was going to win the nomination and wanted to hold back. But by that point, they had really become very reliant on that group of people. And so how can they really stop it? So it's, it's this intensification that's happening. Um, and I don't know how easily it, it, it can be pulled back and reversed. I mean, it probably would take a couple of uh, elections, perhaps. Um, you know, there's demographic change that might play some role. But, um, you know, yeah, I mean, I think it, it's a it's a very problematic place where we are. I mean, we you know, we just 
Doug and I started talking about this over 20 years ago. I mean, it's been a long time. We saw some of this happening back then. And we first wrote about it in relationship to Bill Clinton and Gingrich and such. But I think really where we are right now is, um, you know, a very, a very difficult circumstance, especially with the delegitimizing of democratic norms. Um, Talk about that a little bit, Doug. Um, Doug, Stephen, I want to give you a chance to, um, you know, are we in a uniquely dangerous moment with the delegitimizing of government? And, um, well, go ahead. I don't know if I would say it's unique. Um, You know, we we have to remember we did fight a civil war, right? So so it has, by definition, been worse. Um, But, you know, that's the low point. And I I don't think we're, we're too far away from that low point. Now, I don't know if we'll have another civil war, but but what is clear is that Americans don't view people who disagree with themselves politically as people who just happen to have different opinions, right? It's, it's increasingly you're an enemy to be defeated rather than you're somebody I could you know potentially compromise with or work with to advance legislation. And so it's become more of a zero-sum game. My win is your loss and, and vice versa. And so I think some of the extreme behavioral outcomes of these attitudes are, are like the things that we saw on January 6th. Um, you know, I think political scientists had warned about this possibility ever since Donald Trump uh, was, was named president-elect, just observing the rhetoric that he had. I think we all hoped it wouldn't come to this. Um, but, you know, I have to be honest, when, when I was watching the events of the 6th unfold, I felt more sadness than than surprise. You know, I, I think if you just observe where Americans are politically and how our political elites have these strategic incentives to stoke these divisions, it's sadly unsurprising that that it came to this. And so if past is prologue, then then I think it's going to be difficult for us to govern and actually make progress on on big pieces of legislation, at least on a bipartisan basis. You know, if we get anything done, it's going to be because representation and responsiveness in Washington is increasingly going to be partisan based, right? And so this is why it's going to be hard to facilitate bipartisanship and any sort of um, good feelings among people who disagree politically. We'll see how Manchin does with his compromise legislation on voting rights, right? Well, I I don't want to let too much more time go by without talking a little bit about solutions. I, I know that um, present moment pre- presents serious dangers, but what solutions are possible and um, what could we do to change course or to reinforce the uh, legitimacy of government? And Amy, I know you spent some time in your book on this, so I'd like you to go first if you don't mind. Yeah, I mean, we really wanted to have a good discussion of that because there's so many books to get to the end and like, oh no, what are we going to do? Right. And and there 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 is, you know, we tried to draw as much from research uh findings about what tend to be possible. And I and I'd say some of the things we talk about are are things that are maybe a little bit longer term or more tenuous, like, you know, trying to improve civic education to teach, for example, Sometimes that's sometimes called democratic forbearance, which is when you don't react, you you accept people, you know, a win from somebody else. You don't have to jump in with as much intensity as you feel at that particular moment. 
Um, but I think that um, I think that um, it is possible for people to um, talk about government in different ways, improve what government is doing so that government what is done that's positive is more obvious as a product of government. Um, a lot of the way that we structure our policies, things are kind of sub rosa and hard to see to remove what are called administrative burdens, difficult ways to access things, make things easier to access that helps on the policy side. Um, and to try to really talk to, talk to a lot of people as part of one's campaigning and in a more ongoing way in a, and in a deeper way. And, and you remember in Maine, the campaign for marriage equality that we had back in um, 2012, where people were talking to their neighbors really for over a year um, about the issue and making it very personal. I think there are models like that, that you know, it would take a lot of time and attention and resources and everything, but things like that might be able to be applied more when it comes to not just you know, one specific thing that's coming up on the ballot, but this broader concern that people have um, and the, the what do they want, what would they like to get accomplished and really drawing people out and, and, and training candidates who will be able to do that and candidates who relate to people's lives. Um, um, I mentioned, for example, the, we mentioned the research of Nick Carnes, who's at Duke University on working class candidates, you know, people that can relate to other, other people in their communities if they're more working class communities. So really thinking about who runs, what people talk about, building civic education, um, and thinking about how policies are, are structured and how we talk about them. Those would be, certainly be some, some of the things that we could do. Stephen, I'd like to ask you too, especially from the perspective of your research on rage and misinformation and stoking rage, you know, what positive steps could we take either as a collective or individually to sort of pull some of this back from the brink? You know, unfortunately, it's going to be a little difficult to, to convince politicians to not attempt to make us angry. Uh, and this is because our anger has real clear benefits for politicians. And so one of the things that I argue is that an angry voter is a loyal voter. So when you're angry at the opposing side, you're more likely to vote loyally for your own. So it's essentially a partisan bonding agent. I, re I just I read in the paper today that Democrats really want Trump and Trump candidates on the ballot, probably for that exact reason, right? They, they do. And part of it deals with this idea of nationalization. So, you know, the, there's the famous Tip O'Neill quote about politics being local, but increasingly all politics is not local. It's all national. And so you could be talking about a local issue in Maine, right? And somebody could be talking about an issue in Tennessee, and they may be talking about it in very similar ways and framed in similar ways because it's all dealing with a more sort of abstract national issue. And so I think part of the way we can potentially tamp down anger and perhaps increase trust in government is finding a way to get people to think about something that's not as national. So focusing on uh, municipal elections, right? We know that turnout tends to be lower in these elections. And so this means that your participation has greater power Right? When there's fewer people, you can individually affect more change. And I think if you can see people come together in areas 
where you're making a real tangible impact. And also in areas that tend to be less partisan than more national levels, we might see the development of more political efficacy. And this could help to reduce um, some of the distrust that we see and some of the anger. And so I always hold out hold out a little bit of hope for these most local forms of political participation. What about that, Amy, local? Yeah, I mean, I think people can see that more in their everyday lives, and that's part of it. They can have that more direct experience. How well are the local schools performing? You know, how, you know, all the local things that are going on, how well are they working? They can experience that. I mean, I do expect in in Maine, our big election next year being the governor's race will have lots of fire and fury. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, I think it will focus on some things that are very much, you know, close to people like the handling of the pandemic, you know, whether people like how that worked or not under Governor Janet Mills and, you know, the, the experience of Paul LePage and when he was previously governor and, and cutting the number of public health workers and, and stopping, you know, Medicaid expansion. So, I mean, you know, even though there will be probably lots of name calling and lots of intensity, I think it will also be something that people very much can connect to. Now, in a, a state like Maine, it's different from a lot of other states because we're so small, too. You know, I mean, I don't know if that flies in some other places um, where, you know, people can have that same that same sense of connection. Uh, but yeah, I think the more people feel, and if you can connect with voters, I mean, there, you know, there, we, we have, there are very strong traditions in some places of candidates really connecting one-on-one -on -one with voters. I think that makes a difference. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Amy Freed, the John Mitchell Nickerson Professor of Political Science at the University of Maine, and Stephen Webster, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Indiana University. Uh, this program was pre-recorded. No listener calls are being taken this afternoon. Um, you know, we were talking a little bit before about the intersection between distrust in government and distrust in technocrats or di distrust in elites. And I, I mean, is there a, a way to rebalance on that dimension as well, Amy? I don't know. I mean, I think people do feel more alienated now in certain ways. And we know there's also, you know, just social distrust is higher than it than it used to be, which is, you know, people ask me all the time what went what went wrong with polling at some particular times. It seems like when it comes to Trump voters, a lot of it is people who are higher in social distrust don't tend to want to answer polls so much and they tend to be more likely to be Trump voters. That's a lot of what it is. So I, I think this kind of level of alienation that people feel and where are they in the world? The world is changing a lot. You know, the relationship that they had uh, to others and to power and social changes is, is, is really something that's uh, discomfort, discomforting to people. Um, so, you know, I, I, and I think distrust of some of the technology is actually pretty cross-partisan to tell you the truth right, or bipartisan right. um you know because you because it is something that you don't you don't have that much control over in a, in a in a way and to the extent that you know russian bots have 
been fueling this distrust down so social media channels. And Stephen, do you want to con comment on that? I'll just throw in one other little aspect, which is that I think people left behind by um, income and wealth inequality are justifiably angry, right? And um, translating that into politics. So go ahead, Stephen, comment on that whole thing. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there's a lot there. Um, you know, I, I think the Russian bots, you know, I, you know, there's debates about how much, of course, this this affected anything. But I think, in general, we'd prefer Russians to not be messing with our elections, right? That, that can't be good. Um, if you look at some of the images that the government has flagged as Russian propaganda, I mean, these are these are pretty crazy images, right? It's it's, you know, literally saying things like Hillary Clinton is a vote for the devil, stand on the side of, of God and, and vote for Donald Trump. Right. So, you know, th these are not nice things that that Russian bots are saying about certain politicians. Um, the, the broader point about people feeling left behind economically, I think, is an important one. Um, you know, the world has changed a lot and we're more interdependent and we're more globalized. And so in that process, there have been winners and there have been losers. And I think people who feel like they're on the losing side of these trends are, are justifiably angry. Now, the, the problem is that oftentimes this anger can and does get channeled into some, uh, you know, euphemistically speaking, less than ideal uh, ends. Um, and so I think finding a way to sort of address these concerns before they can be, um, in some sense, to, to use Amy's term, weaponized into, you know, uh, these deleterious consequences, I think would be good. Um, this sort of speaks to these broader debates that political scientists have about you know, what was driving support for Donald Trump? Was it this sort of economic anxiety or was it racial resentment? And, you know, I think the truth of it is that it's not always super easy to disentangle these things. I think sometimes if you feel economically uh, downtrodden, you can channel those frustrations into these sort of uh, cultural um, grievances, right? You, you can say, you know, these immigrants look different from me and I feel like they're taking my job. And so this is a, a tricky thing to solve, right? There's not a flip we can switch or a button we can push because there's lots of things that sort of have coalesced to create this, this moment that we're in. I wanted to sort of ask you about that, Amy, you know, because here in Maine, I, I sometimes wondered if people didn't love Paul LePage less for his policies, but more for the fact that he was just as angry as, as they were. Do you think that could be true? I think that's certainly a part of it. I mean, he call, called himself Trump before Trump, and he would say all these outrageous things, you know, and, and the, you know, his supporters absolutely loved it. And it wasn't just, you know, statements about immigrants and people on welfare and on purportedly all these Black people selling drugs and you know, it, it, you know, it, uh, but, you know, just, and, and, and there was definitely this, like, you can't, you can't believe anybody. I mean, he even said like this windmill had a, wasn't really pushed around by the wind. It had a little motor in it. I mean, he would just come up with these outrageous things and call people all these names. And I think, I think part of it was, yeah, some people just loved it. They, they wanted to say mean things to other people and they liked that he said them who and who he said them to. It's this kind of negative partisanship thing. You're willing to say these mean things. And and delegitimizing the press, which has also been an 
you know, de along with delegitimizing other institutions. I mean, that was part of right. the group. Yeah. Go yeah, ahead. blow up the Portland Press Building and, you know, all, you know, he would just say, say such, such incredible things all the time. And although I, it sounds to me like right now he's trying to hold some of that down. Um, and he did do that in his reelection race. He was actually a bit quieter on some of those sorts of things, but it's not like his supporters forgot about that, I don't think. And so, I mean, this whole distrust thing, I mean, it's about distrust in government, but it's also about distrust in other institutions, right? Universities, the um, the mainstream media and so forth. I see you nodding, Stephen. Would you like to comment? Yeah, you know, I, I think there's this sense among Republicans or, or conservatives that they are being left behind in various areas of society. And so higher education is one that gets, you know, the, the blame or what, you know, we're supposedly a bunch of liberal professors and uh, it's sort of a breeding ground for ideas that, that Republicans don't like. Now, <laughs> whether that's true, right, that's that's less clear. But this is the belief that that a large part of the people in our country have. And so whether you look at, at higher education or you look at um, pop culture, right, there's this sense that the country is moving away from the country that conservatives want it to be and what they imagine it was. And so there's the sense of, of loss. And I think that loss can be either frustration or anger. And this is sort of what I've, what I've written on is that this can have really, really bad consequences at the systemic level, right? It can lower trust in government. It can weaken our commitment to these important norms that, that undergird any sort of democratic society. And so I think this is a really important thing going on on uh, one side of the political divide right now. And of course, the premise of your book is that those feelings have been strategically um, amplified um, for political and financial gain, right, Amy? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's a helpful, it's helpful politically to do that. Mm. Um, you know, but, and I mean, we're not talking about universities per se, but I think the whole, you know, universities are indoctrinating people is, is just so, you know, I don't, I don't think that's really correct. Now, I, I would not defend absolutely everything that happens in every college and every university. There's some things that I think are, are really wrong that I hear about. But I know that, you know, for example, my department at the University of Maine, we're, we're all professionals. We have a wide array of students. I've been the faculty advisor to college Republicans on and off for years, you know, advising the libertarian group. I mean, we like, we really support all students, uh, but all students, part of supporting anybody is to say, okay, here's an alternative argument, but you want to do that for everyone. Yeah. So force more liberal students to think about conservative arguments, mm -hmm. force conservative students to think about more liberal arguments, tell them what the research shows, yeah. challenge everybody to think. Um, and I think that is really the dominant perspective, uh, you know, um, in actuality. We are coming up against the uh, end of our show, and I do want to give you each a minute or two to make some final thoughts about this. And maybe I'll go to you, Stephen, first. Would you just sort of sum up your thoughts on this conversation, distrust in government and how we re recreate a legitimate republic? Yeah, you know, I, I think the first thing to note is that this distrust is a problem. 
right? It's, it's, you know, shockingly low levels of trust in government. And, and we want some sort of healthy skepticism, but where we are right now uh, is problematic. You have to have some sort of baseline level of trust in order to, to accomplish anything that can improve the social welfare. And so there's a couple of things I think we could think about. One is focusing on areas where I think you could make an impact. So these more local levels of government, get involved there and learn how the process works and see things happen. And this can boost your trust. And the other is keep in mind that, you know, if you're feeling angry or you're feeling distrustful, it's probably because someone wants you to feel that way. And so know that oftentimes people are trying to arouse these feelings and these thoughts. And so just be aware of that, be an informed and, and conscious democratic citizen. Thanks, Stephen. Um, now to you, Amy, your final thoughts and summing up this whole topic for us this afternoon. Well, I've been thinking a lot lately as we uh, memorialize September 11th, what it is that we praise people for from those times. And it's people who sacrifice themselves in various ways, running into a building that was in great danger or the people of the passengers of Flight 93 bringing down the plane when they knew it was gonna go crash into you know, the White House of the Capitol. And yet at the same time, we have people now who refuse to wear a mask or get vaccinated. And, you know, if we're going to be a people that can accomplish things that serve everybody, there has to be some kind of commitment to the common good. And you don't have that if there's so much distrust in our government. Again, a certain amount of skepticism is a good thing, but that can move over into just really delegitimizing the government, delegitimizing the public health system, and then you know, where are we? We're unable to work together as a community, as a society to, to accomplish things for all. Now we are out of time. I want to thank our guests this afternoon, Amy Freed. She's the John Mitchell Nickerson Professor of Political Science at the University of Maine. Her most recent book, At War with Government, How Conservatives Weaponize Distrust from Goldwater to Trump, is co-authored with Douglas B. Harris and was published this year by Columbia University Press. Also with us this afternoon was Stephen Webster, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Indiana University. His recent book, American Rage, How Anger Shapes Our Politics, was published by Cambridge University Press in August of last year. Thank you both for joining us today. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM, streaming live at WERU.org. Our website is lwvme.org, that's the League website, for more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in this series. You can subscribe to our podcast at lwvme.org. Thank you all so much. We'll see you next month. Thank you. Thank you.